Good seeing you guys. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I am going to be speaking today. We are wrapping up our a series called Enjoying God. And as we, uh, we, this is coordinating with what we've been showing you about our communities and the community gatherings um, beginning, that one of the things that we have purposed ourselves to do as Redemption Hill is to enjoy God together. We've, we've seen through experience and what we've seen in the Word and what God teaches us and what the grace of God brings us is that we cannot fully know and enjoy and appreciate God apart from community. Um, we need each other to point each other to God through the gospel. And don't worry, there's not a power outage. We're trying to figure out the, the way the switches work. So <clears throat> anyway, all you have to do is, as long as you can see me, well, you can't see me, but just look up here and fake it. Um, anyway, so we cannot know God apart from community fully. We cannot change deeply apart from community. And so in communities, we commit to one another to be honest, to be open, to, um, to share where we're struggling, to, to be honest about our sin, and to confess to one another so that the gospel can change us. And we'll be talking about how that happens um, today. And then fully, we cannot show the world Jesus, honestly, without living in community. The, the quality of our testimony of who Christ is and who God is to the world is dependent upon the quality of our community. So that's why we purpose ourselves and we commit to one another um, to be not just here on a Sunday morning for a couple hours. This is one small sliver, a very important sliver, of what the church is. The church is, the church is so many things. It is preaching. It is what I'm doing right now. It is what we will always do. We will preach the Bible. <clears throat> we will have communion <clears throat> together in a setting like this. But then we, then we also then scatter to our communities where we live out the implications of what we hear on a Sunday morning. So if you're interested in finding more about where those are, how those are, who leads them, um, there's a few people here in blue shirts today. You can meet them. Um, and if you go to the back of the gym after, after the service today, you'll see we have communities in the Fan, Glen Allen, West End, Churchill, Northside, Museum District, Southside, all over the place. You can meet those leaders and find out more about where they meet, when they gather, and all that good stuff. So that'll be after the, after the service today. So we've been enjoying God. The reason why we've, spent, we've labored with this and spent four weeks on this very simple idea is that it is so, it is so easy for us to know stuff about God, to say stuff about God, to, to know truth about God, but not really believe it. If we're very honest, we are unbelieving believers. We know stuff about God that we really, really don't believe. It's a shocking statement to some. But this, this is what I mean. There's a difference between knowing that, let's say, honey is sweet and understanding that when people, that people put it in cookies to make things sweet and people use it for food to make things sweet. It's, it's one thing to know that. But it's another thing to have tasted honey and have a sense of its sweetness. In the same way, it's one thing for us to know facts about God. There's a whole other thing to enjoy Him. And we, and we see very clearly from how we live and our behavior that, that we don't really enjoy God to the full. So what I want to do today and what we've been trying to do for the last three weeks is to close the gap between our 
between our on-paper belief and our functional belief, between what we know it's true and what is real to us. So I'm hoping by the, by the end of this that, that the things that we know about God to be true, they will become so real, and just like honey, we'll be able to taste it and be changed by it. So we, we, we know that these connections are real. It's, look at 1 John 3, verse 5 and 6 says this. He's saying here that you know that Jesus, he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That's a pretty direct statement there at the end. And I do not have time to go into all the wonderful things in that statement, but, but this is what I want to draw out. Look at the connection between sinning. Sinning is choosing to enjoy, choosing to worship, choosing to adore anything besides God. And those that do that, we that do that, when we do that, we are not seeing God clearly or knowing him fully. You see here that sinning is connected to not seeing God clearly and not knowing him fully. So our, we, we can sin only, only if we have a radical loss of perspective. We sin only through a radical loss of perspective. Only if we forget that God is great. It's when we forget that God is good that we sin. Now, we've enjoyed four things. This is the fourth thing today, but I'm going to go through quickly what, what we've done just to bring you up, up to speed. We've been enjoying God's greatness so we don't have to be in control. We looked at in, in depth of how, if you go to the next slide, there you go. If we realize that God is great, we've, we will realize that, you know, we not only can we not be in control, right? There are so many things in this world that we cannot control. Nature, hair loss. Um, I mean, the, 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 it goes, I mean, there's so many things that we try so hard to control, but we simply can't. And then we looked at how God is sovereign and how there is, and how there is not one random atom in the entire universe that God does not control. If there was one atom in the universe that God was not controlling and, and ruling over and determining, he would stop being God at that moment, and we would have to look at the phone book to find another God. We looked at God as great, so we do not have to be in control. We enjoyed God's glory, so we do not have to fear others. We looked at the glory, how the glory of God is encapsulated in his holiness, and that a right view of God's holiness causes us to fear him. Not in a way that's afraid and runs away, but in a way that turns our muscles to water, and in a way that causes us to fall on our faces, but yet not to run. Not to run. A fear that causes us to be so gripped and captured with him that any fear of other people simply vanishes. The fear of God simply pushes out any fear, any lesser fear. Then we, then we talk about enjoying God's goodness so we don't have to look elsewhere. This was last week. We, we, we saw that we, God has hardwired us that we will always do what we think is most beneficial to us at the time. We never act, we never choose in opposition to what we see is most beneficial for us at the time, all things considered. 
So the battle then is, is not to change our behavior or our actions, but to actually have a full sense of God's beauty and his goodness so that we don't have to look anywhere else for satisfaction. We talked about the, the difference between these two Greek heroes, Ulysses and Jason, and Ulysses was, was sailing by this island of the sirens, and these sirens were inhabited by these beautiful yet cannibalistic women, these creatures that had voices that would literally lull men to the island, and then, that's a gross story, but anyway, they eat them, all right? So this is why my daughters like Greek mythology so much. It's just interesting. Um, so anyway, so, so the story goes that Ulysses was sailing by this island, and he knew the sirens were there, and he knew that he could not in any way withstand, and his men could not with any way withstand the beautiful music of the sirens, and they would want to turn and go hear the music and go be crushed on the rocks and with, by, by their ship and then be, be lunch. So he said, men, put wax in your ears. He said, so I want, and when you get there, I just want you to row and row and row. Get by, just get past the island. Get past the voices. Put wax in your ears so you cannot hear. But he said, for himself, tie me to the mast. Tie me to the mast. No matter what I say and what I do, don't do it. No matter what I ask you to do, don't go to the island. No matter what I say. So tie me to the mast. And so he was tied to the mast. He heard the voices in his heart. He wanted to go, but he didn't. Because he was tied to that mast. And how often do we treat ourselves like this? We try to change our behavior simply by restraining ourselves. And in our hearts are really just as idolatrous and just as craving for other things beside God as before. And then we looked at Jason, who was this other guy, who instead of putting wax in his ears, he, he found the most beautiful musician in the world. It's like a nationwide commercial. The world's most beautiful musician in the world. All right? And he... Instead of putting wax in his ears, he put that guy on a ship. And when he heard the sirens' voices, he asked this guy to play. And the beautiful music that he heard from this guy absolutely overwhelmed the music of the sirens. And they were safe. We'd learned how to enjoy God's goodness so we don't have to look anywhere else. This week, we're looking at God is gracious. And here's the implication. We do not have to prove ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. And if I were to be honest, I... Pretty much said all these things, went through three weeks just so we could get to this one. <laughs> so this, is, this, is, this for me is really the sum of all that we've been studying over the last four weeks. And, 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 and I hope that you see that these aspects of God's attributes are really, are really like a diamond. You know how a diamond has, has many facets, and every time you turn it, the light looks a little bit different. The light shines through it just a little bit differently. The, 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 these are not four different aspects of God in the sense that sometimes he's great, sometimes he's glorious, sometimes he's good, and sometimes he's gracious. This is the same God, and we're just simply looking at him like we would turn a diamond in the light and see different facets of him. So we can't choose his graciousness and not choose his holiness like we would want to. We can't, we can't choose his goodness and not at the same time be overwhelmed and absolutely abased by his greatness. We want to keep all those together in the same diamond. And, and I hope that over time and, we, and in, in our communities, we'll be working through these as well um, as almost a diagnostic to, to, to work backward from, from how we're doing. So if, we're, if we realize that we're just being frustrated by trying to control our situations and tr- control our circumstances, we'll look back and think, okay, what am I forgetting about God? Instead of trying all the different techniques that you can kind of 
mantra your way into, you know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, I'm okay, everything's going to be all right. You know, you can count to 10, you can count to 10 backwards. You can do all these different things to, to, to kind of sedate yourself from, from all these different be- be- behaviors. But the reality is, is that every time we do this stuff, we're forgetting something about God. So this is a diagnostic for us. So when we, when we realize that we're being riddled by the fear of others, we think, what do I need to remember about God? Oh, he's glorious and holy and I fear him. And I, if I bow down before him, everything's going to be fine. I have no one else to fear. So, and if we're looking elsewhere, if we feel like our heart are wandering to all these different things and we can't control our desires, and, and though we would want to serve God and obey God and, 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 to be, and to be fully his, yet our heart wanders so often to other lesser deified stuff, We need to remember that God's good. See, all of our sin, all of our negative emotions are a symptom of unbelief. All of them. Now, as we work through this, I want you to think, be careful as we work through this stuff today. I'm not saying a reaction should be to these negative emotions and reactions that I should not do these things. While you shouldn't. And there's an aspect where you have to look at stuff. You know, I shouldn't look elsewhere because God is good. I shouldn't prove myself because God is gracious. I shouldn't fear others because God is glorious. But that does not help you change. What helps us change is when we realize that we don't have to do these things. So, we're going to get into that. You ready? What is the grace of God? This is an impossible, possible question to answer, so I'm just going to point at some things here. It, we think of God being gracious. It's, don't think of it as like an attitude or like a demeanor. When we say someone is gracious, we often mean they're polite, you know, or they're very complimentary, or they're, you know, they're very nice to me. It's not what we mean by all, at all when we say God is gracious, like it's a warm attitude. But instead of telling you what grace is, I'm going to want to show this to you. I want to show this to you but for a second, I'm going to tell you in a, in just in a very short way what it is. And then we're going to get to showing us. We're, we're, we're going to get to showing us what God's grace is. But I think it'll be helpful to, to point at a definition real quick. Don't write this down. I'm not sure about it, okay? I'm going to do my best, all right? I didn't put it up here because if you asked me this this afternoon, I, w- I would change it. But this, this is my best attempt this week to define grace. Grace is the exercise of God's one-way, effectual, and all-sufficient, loving power to glorify himself through our redemption. God's one-way, effectual, all-sufficient, loving power to glorify himself through our redemption. Now, here's where I got that. Look at Ephesians. So, I'm not just crazy. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. One way, God's great love with which he loved us. We are not lovable. God does not set his love upon us because we are worth his love. We are worthy of his love. He sets his love upon us because he is love, and he has grace towards us. God's grace comes to us. It's nothing that we earn. His love for us is nothing that we earn. It is one way from God to us 
We need to have that fixed in our head when we think about grace. It's not something that God helps us to do stuff. There is one sense that God gives us grace to change and grace to do. But in this sense, God's saving grace is something that comes directly from him to us. It is one way. And it's effectual. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The, the love of God, the grace of God, actually causes us to be alive. Dead people don't make any decisions. Dead people don't make choices. Dead people don't decide anything. God decided to show his grace for us, his love for us through his grace. And he made us alive together because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace for us in kindness. Go to the next slide. For by grace, you have been saved. I said that it was all sufficient. You're saved by grace alone. Redemption comes to us not through a partnership between us and God. Redemption comes to us by grace, unmerited grace alone. And it's not your own doing. Sorry, we've been saved through faith. Grace comes to us through faith. But guess what? That faith we didn't come up with. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. If we're not boasting, who's boasting in this situation? God alone is boasting in our redemption. This is about him getting glory. And if there's any mixture of our effort, of our works, of our, of our goodness, of our merit mixed in with this grace, guess who gets the credit? We do. But God gets all the glory because grace is one way, it is all-sufficient, it is effectual toward us. So as we dig into the grace of God, I, I want us to have that fixed in our minds. We've been, as, as, we've, as we've looked at these aspects of God and these attributes of God, we've wanted to look at them from the eyes of someone who's actually enjoying God at the moment. And there's no one better than this, no one better at this than David in the Psalms. So we're going to we're, we're go through another Psalm today, Psalm 32. Here we go. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Think about, think about this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. If God in the universe is our greatest good, Okay? We've been looking at that the last couple of weeks. If he really is our greatest good, then the worst tragedy for us would be our separation from him. The worst thing that could ever happen to us, if God is the universe's greatest good, and he is our greatest good, then the worst thing that ever happened to us would our be sep- us being separated from him. It's not not having an Xbox. It's not not having a certain car. It's not not having physical health. It's not in not having the home that we want, the worst thing that could ever happen to us would be separated from this ultimate good in the universe. So our greatest problem would be that which causes our separation from him. If that's the case, then the greatest news ever for us would be the forgiveness of our sin. That would be the greatest news ever. So forgiveness of sin has to be one of the pinnacles, pinnacles, of God's grace for us. Look at verse 3. For when, I was, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning 
all day long. Now, what is he talking about being silent about? He's talking about being silent about his sin, silent about his transgression. The beginning of this psalm, the first two verses and the last two verses, encapsulate David's experience. David's experience with God, his experience of God's grace. And so we're going to see at the beginning, this is what he realizes after going through verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and on. He realizes that blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. But that's not where he started. That's not where he started. He started like just where you and I start with keeping silent about our weaknesses, silent about our failures, and silent about our sin. He starts right where you and I start. He doesn't immediately acknowledge his transgressions against God. He, he knows about it. He groans about it. Yet he keeps silent. Now, what does it mean for him to do this? And what does it mean for us to keep silent about the things that we know, we know that we have done against God's goodness, glory, greatness, and grace? Why do we, why do we wait so long? The admission of our sin as sin implies something dreadful about ourselves. And it is an attack on our pride and our self-esteem. We're not quick to confess our sins. We're not quick to confess where we struggle and where we're weak. Confessing sin as sin, not as weakness, not as struggles, not as I was defeated, or I had a, I had a lack of indiscretion. No, sin as sin. We don't want to say that because it says so much about who we really are. We also don't like what grace has to say about us. We want, to have some, we, we, we want to have some participation in this so we can get some credit for the change that God brings into our lives. So, so we, have, we struggle with this idea of sin. We struggle with the idea of grace. We try to save ourselves, and so we try to prove ourselves. Because if, if we're not going to immediately confess our sin we have to do something about it because we're groaning. We've got to do something about it because it weighs upon us. So what do we do? We prove ourselves. We prove ourselves to ourselves. We try to prove ourselves to each other. And we try to prove ourselves to God. This is what it looks like. I wonder which one of these applies to you the most. As we go through these, just... Think, okay, which one could I put the check mark by? We prove ourselves by defending ourselves. <laughs> put it, think about it this way. How difficult is it for you to receive good, honest, corrective feedback about something you've done? <laughs> Honestly. I mean, when you've put your heart and soul into something and someone has something to correct or something to say or something that didn't quite hit them right, it, you're, if you're like me, first thing you want to do is explain things. The first thing you want to do is to say, well, you know, I didn't have enough time to work on it. I didn't have enough, you know, I didn't have enough resources. You know, I, I, I was, I'm, I'm thinking particularly about my career in marketing where, where literally all day long I would have to think about how to defend what I did to our clients <laughs> and explain to them, you know, it really is good. <laughs> I know you think it's bad, but, you know, this really is a good design. I, I, you know, Work with me here. Yeah, I know it's not what you asked for, but, you know, some other stuff happened, and we're working on this for you instead of this. I mean, our, I mean if you're in business, you understand this. You're, you come up with a million ways to defend yourself, and whatever 
you've done whenever we're criticized. Now, on a personal level, when you're confronted with a weakness or a sin, how, how easy is it for you to explain your behavior away? Well, I had a bad day. <laughs> you know, I, I'm usually not like this. I, I just had a bad day. Or, you know, it, sweetheart, if I had known that the kids had given you such a hard time, I would have been more gracious when I got home. You know, but I didn't know you had such a hard day. That's not why you, that's not why I didn't respond to my wife in the way I should have. That's not why it hurt her feelings when I walked in and simply asked about dinner and she fell into tears, you know. No, it's, it's deeper reasons than that. But yet we want to defend ourselves so quickly. We also defend ourselves by looking at all the things we did right. It's like, yeah, okay, I, I know in this I did some things wrong, but, but, but look, at, look at what I did right in this situation. We want so quickly to defer any honest criticism. And as a result, we rarely have conversations about the difficult things in our lives. Rarely. Think about your conversations. When was the last time you had an honest, open talk with your, with your spouse, with, your, with, with a friend, with someone in your community, where you talked directly and exactly about things that you were struggling with? We were having huge difficulties with. We don't want to have those conversations because we want to keep defending ourselves and to prove ourselves to other people. We pretend. To what lengths do you go to to keep up appearances? I mean, how bad does it have to get before we'll ask for help? If something in our homes or something that we're working on or something that we just can't figure out. How, guys, how long do we have to be lost before we'll ask for directions? I mean, I'm so glad there's GPS on this thing. Oh, my gosh. I no longer have to look foolish in front of folks at gas stations and 7-Elevens anymore, you know? We want to pretend we're not lost. Think about the damage control that you exercise over your reputation. How do you feel like you avoid reflecting deeply on your life? If you do, as a, I, my, I venture to say that not many people know the real you. If I'm, and if I'm even more direct, I don't think you know the real you. I don't think I know the real me when I am pretending and wanting, trying so hard to keep up appearances in front of others. Hiding. <laughs> I do this. When things are going really well for me, I'm working on all cylinders. You know, the sky is blue, grass is green. Things are, I am, I'm on top of things. I am the most social person. I am calling people. I am inviting myself over for dinner. I mean, I'm doing all kinds of, I mean, I'm just out there, okay? But when I'm not doing so well, I tend to not return phone calls. I tend to keep to myself. I tend to not be so honest and open when I'm not doing well. Do, do you do, you do, am I the, do, do you do that too? I, I realize that I'm trying to prove myself to myself. Now, is your biggest fear that people will reject the real you? Oftentimes when we hide, we redefine sin as we, we, we feel shamed by our sin, not because we've sinned against God, 
but oftentimes because we have sinned against the idea that we have about who we are. We've sinned against our upbringing. We've sinned against our morality. We've sinned against our moral code. And so we feel shame, not because we've broken God's law, but because we've broken our own. And we can shed tears over that, but that's not real repentance. It's just hiding. Or we blame. Okay. We can, when something goes wrong, we react sinfully. When we get angry, we can blame everything around us. We can blame, like I just said, we can blame the day that we had, the thing that went crazy at work, the, the thing that absolutely exploded on us that we never anticipated, the, the client that we just lost. We can, we can blame it there, or we can blame it on our upbringing. I mean, I had a bad, dysfunctional family. I mean, my dad, my mom, my sisters, I mean, just that's why I react the way I do. Or my personal history. I've been through a lot in my life. I've been abused by this or by that. I've been, I, I've been disregarded. I've been disrespected. I've, that's why I'm angry. That's why I do the things that I do. There's so many things that we can point to besides us. Or biology. I'm just Irish or I'm just Spanish or I'm just white. I'm just black. You know, wh- whatever it is, we can blame we do anything but, and we also even blame sin itself. We, we, we use words like defeated. Like I was defeated by sin. Like it's some power out there, not inside of us. Like I was attacked by a monster. You know, what was I supposed to do, you know? So, no, that's not what sin is. Sin is a, an inordinate desire. It's deep within us. So we can't use words, we can use words like defeated, but when we do that sometimes, we're trying to cover up the fact that we just did what we really wanted to do. We don't want to be honest, so we blame others. We minimize. I'm not really that bad. (laughs) We compare ourselves to other people to justify our behavior. We highlight our goodness, the good things we do to make up for our badness. (laughs) And like I already said, we use these euphemisms like, you know, I, I was just being thoughtless. Or... You know, I've, I've, I just haven't been disciplined recently. Or, you know, I've just been really preoccupied with other, other things. That's why I wasn't so careful when I spoke to you. Or, that, or that's why I haven't been caring for you. And those things just simply minimize the reality that we sin. And as a result, as a result of this one particularly, things don't get the attention that they deserve in our lives. The things that we should be spending our time on, things that we should be thinking about, they just don't get the, time, the amount of attention that they deserve. This last one, relying on ourselves. I've got this one. I can fix this. What we're honestly saying is that, yes, I know I'm wrong. I know I've got issues. But you know what? I'm good enough. and I'm smart enough. I can do this. One of my other bald-headed heroes, C.J. Mahaney, said this. He said, when, when we take this kind of... of um, role in our change and in our growth and our sanctification. We're committing cosmic plagiarism. Change is God's work. We cannot fix ourselves. But yet, in lieu of confessing our weakness and our sin and trusting the one-way, all-sufficient, effectual grace of God, we'll rely on ourselves. So, what's the result? Look at verse 4 in, in, in Psalm 32. 
How did, what, what happens to David here? For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength and vitality was dried up like the heat as by the heat of summer. Dry, hard, fruitless. This is the result of not being honest, of not confessing sin. We dry up just like it's been recently. My friends and I, we were trying to have a Tried to have a, we tried to have s'mores last night in a fire, and we figured out that the city's like shut down. All you can't have fires because of the drought and stuff like that. I mean, it's just it's like. And then I tried to mow my yard yesterday, and it was like a dust bowl. I mean, just I thought about this. I, our, we we become dry as my backyard when we're not honest. We don't confess. We don't take hold of the grace of God. We're fruitless. Now is this? the condition of your heart today or recently are you characterized like this maybe you've tried to fix it maybe you've maybe you think that your spiritual dryness you can fix that maybe you've bought a new bible see if that's a problem a new translation maybe maybe you've redoubled your efforts you know maybe instead of reading your bible 3 times a day you read it 5 times a day or or, and you think that will make the difference. Or maybe you tried to re- recreate a past spiritual experience. Like, okay, I remember I felt God here and did this there, so I'm going to try to make that happen again. Maybe I'll change churches. Maybe, you know, that's the problem. I'm dry because of this place. See, we get to this place and we completely forget how we got here. Now look what David does. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. <laughs> and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He didn't cover his iniquity. He acknowledged his sin. He confessed his transgressions. And, God, and he experienced God's forgiveness. Now, I want to ask a big question here. Big question. What came first? Did David... Did David's perception and understanding of God's graciousness come first? Or did his repentance and his confession compel God to be gracious? This is a big difference. This is the, here, here's why. If we believe that in order for God to be gracious toward us, that we have to do these things, then it's very likely that we are repenting of our sin for fear of punishment and not because we've sinned against God. It's very likely that, 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 that we're just doing the wise thing and confessing our sin because I don't want to be punished for it. But if we realize that God is gracious, our hearts are melted, and we are free, open, fearless to confess our sins like David. Which comes first? I know for David it came first, that God was gracious. Last week, we talked about Moses and how God revealed himself to Moses. And we looked in Exodus 34. Let me read this to us. God, Moses had asked to see God's glory. He had asked to, 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 though he had found favor with God, he wanted to see God in his glory. And this is what God said to him. 
didn't necessarily show him his glory in some sort of visual splendor. Moses got a sermon. He got a sermon about God's goodness. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This is how I know God's grace comes first. What was Israel doing at the bottom of the mountain, in the field, when God was revealing his grace to Moses? Do you remember? Were they worshiping? Were they praying? Were they rejoicing? They were. But they were worshiping the gods of Egypt. Thinking that God had forgotten about them, thinking that Moses had forgotten about them, Moses must be dead, God must have killed him, he's not here, what are we going to do? They turned their hearts back to Egypt from where they came. They were in the midst of an idolatrous, sinful practice. Yet God speaks into that situation and says, I am gracious. God's grace comes first. Now, let's look at verse 6. If you'll go to verse 6, it says this. Because, because David has experienced the grace of God, the one way, compassionate grace of God, he says this now. Therefore, let everyone who is godly or meek Offer prayer to you at a time that you may be found. What he's saying is that because of God's grace, come. This is just like Jesus saying, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Weary. Weary from trying to prove yourself. Weary from trying to make up for all the things that you know you've done wrong. Laden by the guilt of our sin. Those of you that feel that, come to me. Is what Jesus is saying. And in fact, he's also saying that, you know what? These are the folks that will come to me, are those that are weary and heavy laden. If you're not weary from having trying to prove yourself, if you're not guilty, if you don't feel the guilt of your sin, you will not come. So he calls all of those to come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. These are the ones that come to him. says here that you are a hiding place for me. You've preserved me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is what he's confessing about God. Now, in the verse right before this, he says that, and I actually didn't put it up here, but if you look in your Bibles, it says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time that you may be found, because surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. In the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. What is he talking about? Talking about the rush of the great waters of God's wrath. If you will confess your sins and hide yourself in the goodness and the righteousness of Christ, the great flood of God's wrath will not reach us, is what he's saying. David has in his mind here the, these, 
these empty riverbeds in the desert in Israel that during the summer seasons are completely dry. But rain comes into the Middle East so suddenly, almost out of nowhere. And these dry riverbeds can become suddenly full of gushing water because of rainfall that comes uphill miles away. So what he's saying here is that you, you can be stuck in this dry riverbed and feeding your sheep there or whatever, and literally out of nowhere, this rushing water can come towards you. He's, that's what's in his head. And he says, guess what? I, I hid myself in God's goodness. I've been forgiven of my sin, and the great waters of God's wrath will not reach me. Now, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. He suffered the fullness of God's wrath against sin so that God's wrath will no longer reach us. This is good news. Now, what does this have to say about us proving ourselves? Look at this. What does Jesus' death on the cross have to say about us who are so bent on proving ourselves? What does it say to us? It says this. First of all, it says you cannot prove yourself. The cross says that you cannot prove yourself. You cannot. If you go to that slide where it says you cannot prove yourself, if it's up there, if not, it's okay. Here we go. You cannot prove yourself. Look at this. The reality is, is that we go deeper into the gospel. As we go deeper into the gospel, the more we comprehend our sin. Think about that. The deeper we go into the gospel, the more we comprehend and confess aloud the depth of our sinfulness. A gruesome death like the one Christ endured for us would be only required for one who is exceedingly sinful and unable to please a holy God. We try so hard to maintain our reputation, though. We're so worried about what folks might be saying. We become fearful fearful and defensive. But yet, look at what the cross says about us. Look at this next quote. It says, indeed, the most humiliating gossip. Think about this. All right, we're, we're fearful about how people talk about us. All right, think about this. The most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgotha's hill, and my self-righteous reputation is left in ruins in the wake of its revelations. With the worst facts about me exposed to the view of others, I find myself feeling that I have truly nothing left to hide. Nothing left to hide. The cross simply disposes of our righteousness completely exposes us for who we really are. We cannot receive at the same time the benefits of the forgiveness of our sins and try to prove ourselves at the same time. It is mutually exclusive. We cannot receive the benefits of the cross and not also experience its exposure about who we are. We can't do it, and we try so hard. We try, you know, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian. I get this. I get the cross. I need the cross. I wear it around my neck. I talk about the cross. I look at the cross. I need the cross. But, you know, I, but I'm not really that bad. We try to prove ourselves even still in light of the cross. How on earth can we stand next to the cross and have anything left to say? But we do. This is what it looks like. We cannot defend ourselves in light of this. I mean, we, <laughs> there's just 
We cannot defend ourselves in light of what our sins were worth. This man on a cross is what our life produced. There's no argument against that. You cannot pretend and hide anymore. We just simply cannot. We want to keep everyone admiring us, but yet any connection to the cross leaves our self-righteousness and reputation in ruins. The cross says that we are not okay. We are so tempted to pretend and hide. Now, I'm going to take a moment here to explain how this particular temptation to pretend in light of the cross is important for us as leaders and pastors and particularly as me. So personally, last week you got Odysseus and Jason. This week the illustration is me. So here, here we go. Um, one of the biggest temptations for us is to try to please others and to keep a good reputation. That is the, one of the biggest temptations for us pastors. Now, because of this, because of this temptation and because of all the qualifications for leaders and pastors to be above reproach, we have to fight diligently, ruthlessly for honesty. One of the things that Robert Ray and I work on so hard is we're fighting for honesty in how we're really doing what's going on in our lives. This is why Paul exhorts Timothy to keep a close watch on your teaching. That's not what it says. It says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or the doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The truth is this, guys. It is so much easier to watch our doctrine, especially in this environment, than it is to watch our life. Now, toward this end and toward realizing this um, at Redemption Hill between the three elders, we took two weeks of working sabbaticals this summer to where we would pull away and not just work within our lives as pastors, as fathers, as husbands, as friends, but to work on our lives in these capacities. So we took two weeks to pull back from our ministry responsibilities and to work on ourselves. This, this time was incredibly fruitful for Rebecca and I. And I mean, despite in the middle of lice treatments and fevers and the kids are going crazy, Rebecca and I actually got a couple hours a day to sit down in peace and quiet and actually talk about us. I couldn't not remember the last time we'd spent that much time simply talking about what's going on with our hearts and our marriage and our family. So it was really good, but we also realized some real weakness and sin on my part. Several areas where I realized my heart had grown cold, particularly in my role of encouraging her, leading her, of discipling our kids, and if I'll be on, I will be honest, uh, my own affections for God. I just realized that, that I've been pouring so much of my heart and my mind and my attention into what I do here, into what the, all the ministry things that, that I'm responsible for, that my heart had really started to grow cold. Life had become more about keeping something going and building something than, than, than maintaining a white-hot affection for God. So after an honest look at myself, I realized that I was not watching my life as closely as I thought. So I, I honestly, I took this to Robert Ray after my, my, my two weeks and said, look, I, I realized all this stuff about me. 
So this is, what, um, this is what's happening with this. I realized all this stuff. I was able to confess just this, this sin that I, that I that this pattern of sin that I'd seen of just preferring myself and activity and busyness over the more important things with, with my family and with others and with the church. And um, anyway, so I was able to confess that to these guys. And by the grace of God, I've really experienced some real repentance. And Rebecca and I are really experiencing some real fruit in this. But um, this is what's going to happen. I've decided to actually extend my sabbatical. And this is a little announcement for us. I've decided to extend my sabbatical, my working sabbatical, to, to the point where I'm going I'm to pull back from my responsibilities as an elder. And I'm gonna, where I've been active as an elder for almost two years now, I'm going to become inactive as an elder for a period of time to give myself space and room in order to watch my life and doctrine closely, to make sure that I'm not pretending. Now, there's been some great fruit. I've been repenting, and I've, I've, I've been working on, on, on some things, but I want to make sure that it's not just a moment of conviction, but that I actually set up healthy patterns for myself, for my wife, and for our family. So, so this is going to help. This is really going to help me. It's going to help us. It's going to help us as, as a church. I love you guys. I love this church. I love the, all that God is doing here. But I am, I am feeling the conviction to spend, to pull back, to take, to take my mind and heart off of all of it, to put my mind and heart back where it needs to be for now. So, um, in Titus it says, to be a lover of good, to be self-controlled, to be upright, holy, and disciplined. I want to be those things. It just doesn't feel right until I'm sure I'm walking in those things, to continue to, to be responsible for the whole thing. So anyway, just, I know, sir, just hear me. Rebecca's all, also doing this. She's pulling back from almost all of her ministry responsibilities with RH Kids. And so we're going to be able to do this together. I'm really excited about that. Um, it's not easy for us at all. Please pray for me. Please pray for her. Um, but it's going to be worth it. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking. Let me just say this. There's no gross sin in my life, okay? There's no smoking guns. There's no mistress. There's nothing. There's none of that, okay? Um, I've not used any euphemisms in anything I just described. I stand before God with a clean conscience, and this was completely my decision, too. It all came about when, when Robert, at the end of our sabbaticals, asked, do we need to extend them? Do we need to become inactive as elders for a season in order to make sure that everything's right with our heart, everything's right with our home. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. <laughs> so I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving. My day-to-day responsibilities are not going to change. Um, I'm still going to be responsible for developing community and working with so many of you. But I'm kind of moving from the middle captain seats in, in the van to the bench seat in, in the van with all the booster seats and the crayons. So I'm going to be hanging. So I'm still, I'm still with us, all right? Um, so please feel free to ask me any questions, ask Robert Ray any questions about this. I'm so looking forward to serving you guys with a full heart and loving my wife more than I ever have and serving my kids the way I should. So anyway, pardon the commercial. But I hope you see that this, this, is, this is a reality that we want so much to pretend. And I, I, I just can't pretend. I want to make sure I'm not pretending. So we cannot blame anything but ourselves. That's what the cross says. If you look at the next slide, or where, where we were, we cannot blame anything but ourselves. There's a man 
on the cross in our place. Somebody has died. We cannot excuse this. We did it. We sinned. There is a man experiencing death on the cross. There is a smoking gun with our, with our fingerprints on it. We cannot blame anybody for ourselves. This is what the cross says. We can't minimize our sin. I mean, who are we kidding? We cannot minimize this. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our sins cause Jesus, the perfect son of God, to be separated from his father. There's no minimizing it, folks. We want so much, we want so much to confess our weaknesses and just be adjusted a little bit. We don't want to be seen as sinful and dead and raised from the dead. We just want a little adjustment, like a chiropractor. You know, something's a little off, you know? Just adjust me a little bit. That's what we want, but that's, that's not repentance. That's not going to bring us the blessedness and the happiness that David's talking about. So, I'm going to wrap up here. It's not just the cross says that we cannot do these things. It says, like I said before, that we don't have to. We don't have to do these things. The righteousness of Jesus shows for once and for all time that we do not have to prove ourselves anymore. Romans 10.3 says this. It says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. He's talking about Jews that have not yet come to faith in Jesus. He says they seek to establish their own. Being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Think about it this way. All of our efforts, all of our desires to prove ourselves is an attempt for righteousness. It's an attempt to make things that are not right. We know they're not right. Others know they're not right. God knows they're not, God knows they're not right. Yet, yeah, but we're trying to make them right. We're trying to prove our own righteousness because we're ignorant. We don't get it. We don't see the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us through Jesus on the cross. He lived the perfect life. And that's been given to us. But because we forget that, because we're not conscious of that, because we don't savor that, because we don't look at that, and because we're arrogant, we want to prove ourselves. So we don't have to defend ourselves, though. We don't have to defend ourselves anymore. Before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, Because this sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon us and pardon me. Pardon me. Pardon me. No. To look on him and pardon me. Our one and only defense, our one and only defense is the righteousness of Christ. We don't have to pretend or hide anymore. Though we're sinful, Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to us. There's nothing left to hide from. God proves himself gracious so we can fully repent of our sins to God and in front of others. Contemplate his righteousness. We don't have to blame anything around us. We can own the full extent of our sins because Christ was blamed for our sins. There's no more blame to go around. We don't need to blame shift anymore. 
God through the cross is saying, I have blamed my son in your place. I have blamed him for your sins. There is no more condemnation. He took it all. There is not just, he took some condemnation and we, take a, and we keep a little bit just to keep ourselves in check. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no need to minimize our sin. It's gone. Our sin is gone. Every time we're tempted to minimize it, make light of it, realize that because of Jesus on the cross, it is gone. As far as the east is from the west, God has removed our sins from us. He put away sins by the sacrifice of his son. We can put aside all of our minimizing of what we do. So what is relying on ourself in light of this? Relying on ourself is not just wrong. Look, look, it's unnecessary. <laughs> Do you see that? To rely on ourselves to fix ourselves is absolutely unnecessary. There's nothing left to do but to worship him. Nothing. Nothing left to do but to worship God for his grace and his goodness. Sin is really us worshiping something else instead of God. We worship our way into it, guys. We worship our way into our weaknesses and our struggles and our problems and our negative emotions and all the bad things we experience. We worship our way into that by perceiving other things that are better than God. We deify lesser stuff. And the only way out is to worship our way out. The only way out from the sin that we worship our way into is to worship our way out by seeing God as glorious, by seeing Him as great, by seeing Him as good, by seeing Him as one way, all-sufficient, effectual, gracious for us. That's why David at the end says this, many are the sorrows of the wicked, verse 10, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. He started off this, this psalm by saying he was happy, but now, now, now look, his happiness has been turned up a notch. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Those of you that have been made righteous because of Christ, righteous because of God's grace, shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the point. This is the point. The reason why we go through all this and we want to have hard conversations and, and dig up all this stuff that's going on in our hearts is not because we want you to feel bad about yourselves. It's because we want you to experience joy. This is what, look at David's life. Look at what he experienced. And may we enter into that joy this morning by being honest, by quit minimizing, by quit pretending, and seeing God is absolutely gracious. Let's pray. God, we're, we need you to open our eyes. We need you to do a miracle. We are dead. We are blind. We ask you to open our eyes to see your goodness. Amen.